My name's Nick Banks. Banks. I hit things for pulp, for pulp. And you're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, with me, with me, with me, with me. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo Digital editor Chris Catchpole and Nick Banks. Hello, gang. Good day. Hello. The timekeeper and regulator of Sheffield's <laughs> peerless pulp. One time pottery scion and nephew of the greatest ever English goalkeeper, Gordon Banks. Nick Banks has now become an author, writing a dryly witty autobiography with the perfect title of So It Started Here. The book catalogues his time in pulp and the times before, after and in between. And Nick is also currently in the midst of a pulp reunion tour. And is speaking to us, I think, from yes. very close to the grounds of the Latitude Festival. Is that correct, correct, Nick? That is all, all correct, yes. All correct so far. Yeah. Fantastic. So before we start, here is a Pulp Live favourite, and I think one of Nick's favourites as well. This is going way back. This is My Legendary Girlfriend, written by Pulp and released on Fire Records in 1991. Welcome to the show. And the first Thanks thing I first thing I would like to say is about this thoroughly enjoyable memoir of yours is your astonishing degree of recall. It is meticulous. The minutiae that you remember, not just of your days in pulp, but the uncanny, evocative world of school and childhood. There is a scene in the book about coming back to school and everyone waiting to see who's still wearing flares and who is <laughs> wearing and who is wearing straight trousers that mm. is almost exactly the same as my own memory i remember pleading with my mom to get a pair of and that was for a school trip it was it was for a school trip yeah. so was obviously everyone was allowed to wear their own trousers and i was pleading with my mom that i get get a pair of straight jeans for the school trip and it was essential yeah. that this yeah. happened yeah, it was weird. It's almost, it, looking back, it almost felt like it happened over, literally overnight. But yes. I'm sure if you if you time travelled back there, it was more gradual than that. But yeah, yeah. It, 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 that sort of it coincided with the age that you were starting to get a little bit more self aware of how you wanted to present yourself, rather than just your mum sort of saying, "Right, there's your clothes." Off your pop, you know, yes. you were kind of, it was a little bit on your, all your, you know, loads of kids at school were, were sort of changing and all this. And, and you sort of had that sort of uh, existential angst of, of, I cannot be seen now with these great flared trousers. You know, it's just, it's, and, and, you know, obviously hassled parents can't be doing all that. Because you're, yeah. you're, you're, I think you're a year younger than me. I think I was born in 1966. Were you born in 65? I'm 65, yeah. So it happens to us as well at a period of huge cultural change, which if anyone hasn't quite guessed from the flares to straight trousers, kind of yeah, yeah. in the midst of <laughs> punk. Yeah, or yeah. punk by the time that it's reached kind of the north which is and, and our age exactly yeah, yeah exactly which is seven which is kind of 78 79 mm. and the you kind of i just jumped on those chapters because because i'm of a similar age it just kind of like it was so powerful so evocative mm. and um and i wonder kind of like while you were writing the book i'm guessing that you weren't quite prepared for the fact that there would be another 
pulp reunion. So I, I wonder, are you going to mm. have to add an additional chapter when the paperback comes out? It's hard to say, really. Uh, it was a completely, is it serendipity? Is that the yes. kind of, is, yeah, that yeah, the, yeah. is that the word? Um event you know i started i started writing basically as a lockdown thing which i'm sure many many people started whether they've finished or not i don't know but you you just kind of think well the the sort of pulp story just on its own is is quite an astonishing sort of rags to riches kind of tale that i thought that it it needed to be it needed to be you know catalogued and even even if no one was interested at least it was there for future generations of mine you know uh that kind of thing you just start writing it and think that you know these this is a uh, it's a great tale that needs to be told from this sort of i suppose an outsider to an insider point of view and um yeah you just sort of get on with it and then you know when when sort of jarvis pops around and says oh shall we, shall we play a few concerts you're thinking Jackpot! You know. So. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, the thing I like about the book is you, you kind of remain insider and outsider through it. There's a sense in which you're very honest in the book about the events that you're not party to, where you go, "Why has that happened? How did that happen? No one's telling me." You know, there's a real yeah. kind of sense yeah. of like you don't, you don't retrofit your experience. You don't go away and kind of. Say, of course, at this time, this was happening. It's like almost like kind of, I'm going to be vaguely pretentious here for a second. It's almost mm. like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in Hamlet. You know, they're kind of like, they're off. They're I am from Rotherham, kid. We didn't, we didn't, Shakespeare weren't invented then. <laughs> it's in the sense that you're off to one side, you're observing a version of the story, you're observing a version of the pulp story. And when stuff isn't, when you're not party to decisions, you put mm. that in the book, you tell people that. And I thought that was yeah. really fascinating. It, it's that kind of thing, you know. A, a band is a multi-headed monster in a way, yeah. and and you know, I've only got the experience of of being in pulp. I've never been in, in another band that's been at that kind of level. So all your experiences are sort of uh, you know defined by by that. And and if other bands all sit around have a weekly meeting, this is I think is you know, impossible. Sit around have a weekly meeting and say, right, uh, this is what's happening this week. Uh, let's go back over the last couple of weeks' uh, uh, events and discuss them. This is happening this week, and then moving on forward, you know, like a board meeting. You know, bands don't work like that. You yeah. know, you, you kind of, you know, you, you hear dribs and drabs, and you know, there might be a big event that, you know. No, we didn't. No, we never really sat down and said, "Oh, right, okay, so we've done that album. We're going to record the next album. We're going to do this." Da da da. It just kind of, it just sort of. I hate to say that word evolves, but it just kind of, you know, you just everyone's sort of carried along in this sort of slipstream, mm. and you know, you get information, you know, either sometimes directly or sometimes just by, uh, you know, maybe one of the other bands saying, "Oh, did you hear about so and so?" And they're like, "No." Yeah, and you know, but you know, bands are bands are difficult like that in a way. Yeah, you know? I mean, you you mentioned obviously this. You're on the this is the second reunion, and Jarvis popping around to say, yeah. how, how does how do these sort of conversations start? You know, who first blew well, the con show? Is is it as casual as that? You just bump into yeah. each other and someone floats the idea. Well, um, well, uh, the thing is, uh, we're not of that kind of idea that. Any other member of the band is so far up themselves they can kind of go, right, uh, I'm going to be off to do a, a two-year Pulp World Tour. Who else is in? You know, <laughs> you know you, you're not going to do that, you know, because, you know, without Jarvis, it ain't Pulp. Simple as that. So, you know, the, the idea, you know, you're not going to force him to do anything. You know, it just ain't happening. So... Uh, yeah, the idea of it really is going to be a case of if 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 Jarvis wants or thinks the time is right to do something, then he can canvas uh, everybody else's opinion um, about whether they well whether they want to do it or whether it's a good idea that sort of thing. So, you know, yeah, the 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 information is 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 comes down from the from the surface of the sea down to us bottom feeders, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was at the Finsbury Park show, which was which was just just phenomenal. Um, but obviously, you know, it was very much, you know, the the bulk of the set you're kind of drawn from different class and some of his and hers. But my, I think my two favourite songs of the night were um, "This Is Hardcore" 
uh, and Sunrise off We Love Life. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you, yeah. how do you, it's over 20 years since We Love Life now. How do you feel yeah. about yeah. that record and, and, and This Is Hardcore, you know, looking back? Now. Um, yeah, I think they, I think they both um, got great elements to them. Um, they were both very difficult to make compared to his and hers in different class. Um, mm. You know, I think in the book I allude to sort of the this is hardcore becoming almost like the second album syndrome where you've had this success and then it's like, I mean, obviously it was that sixth or seventh or something, you know, where you've had all this success and it's like, uh, oh, right, oh, we've got to do it again now, haven't we? Uh, you know, and, but, but you know, with hindsight, there's, there's some great stuff on, on both records. You know, they, all records are flawed, you know, in some way. Um, but I think this will sound pretty... Pretty fresh, all pretty interesting, you know. Yeah. There's there's lots of good stuff going off in there, and certainly playing those tracks, two tracks live, and saying this is hardcore and sunrise, um, they're great tracks to play, and and say that they're kind of long tracks with, you know, quite um, protracted instrumental sections. The crowds still seem to get off on them, so uh, yeah. so jobs are good, and you know. Mm. I mean, you also, I saw, um, I was there in Sheffield last Saturday. You played, yeah. uh, is it Hymn of the North? Uh, Hymn of the North, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, I suppose that's kind of, I mean, I think Jarvis, based on a song Jarvis written uh, a few years ago. But um, as far as we're concerned, that, that's a new pop song. That, it might be, again, you know. <laughs> so uh, I guess, I guess, what, um, I guess what Chris, Chris is tentatively um moving towards is <laughs> and maybe maybe from what you've said nick that you're you're the last person to know but is do you, is there going to be more new pulp music do you know uh, i doubt it to be perfectly honest um uh you're gonna ask me why now aren't you really um <laughs> it's kind of well it, it it's really really hard and and we we sort of saw from um the last two albums that you know it, as you get older it doesn't get easier it kind of gets it gets harder in a way because maybe you're too um self-aware too sort of knowing about stuff and so yeah so it's really hard um and if we if we did sit down and say show him show him do new music it's going to take three four years out of your life to do it, it's that sort of thing of writing, recording, and then there'd be obviously promotion and touring, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, bloody hell, I've got a lawn to mow. You know, I mean, just over these last two weeks, it's gone to rack and ruin. You know, so you know, <laughs> yeah, they're kind of thinking that all that going down to London and sitting in a recording studio Monday to Friday, sort of you know, midday to midnight, he's kind of thinking, well, we've kind of done that now, and maybe we won't do that again. So yeah, I'll, 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 I'll put the odds very high against against a, a new pulp record, to be personally honest. Sorry. Uh, this is the Mojo Record Club. 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 The subtitle of your book is, which we haven't mentioned yet, is From Punk to Pulp. Yes. And your time as a um, 14-year-old Rotherham nihilist is mm. beautifully detailed and as i said earlier very evocative your love of blondie the pistol yeah. the clash yeah. getting into reggae um trying to trying to get into punk gigs when you're underage the last yeah. bus home and also one of my big takeaways from i've not read it all yet i must yeah. admit because i got it a couple of days ago so i've been jumping about and which is great when you, mm. you get that chance to just sort of pick through and pick over stuff but alighting on this philosophy at the age of 14, of creativity over technique, which yes. is kind of, you know, which yes. is a phrase that I, you know, kind of is one of the takeaways from the book. And the record that you've brought in to talk about today yeah. is, is one, it's rooted in those years, but also it's rooted in that statement. Um, yeah. Is, um, I should tell, tell the listeners what it is. It's cut by the slits. Indeed, yes. Uh, the legendary 79 debut album, uh, which you know, which uh, which caught the eye to fourteen-year-old lads because the the uh, musicians were kind of naked on the cover, covered in mud. Yeah. You know, um, so it did catch the eye, and then yeah. I think uh, one of my mates had a copy of it, and we played it to death because um, we loved it so much. Um, 
And yeah, he, he kind of did. Although I'm going to contradict myself a bit, really, because if, you, if you're talking about the actual nuts and bolts of the of the record, it's I mean it's it's super melodic. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, there's harmonies on there, which you know when you you think because we'll have been listening to this in 1980, 81 sort of time. Yeah. Really, we never, we you know, it's rather we, you know, you never you never got anything up to date that kind of thing. So we listened to it probably a couple of years after it came out, really, uh, and you know to sort of you know young sort of sixteen year old kids who were sort of trying to make their own music. This was kind of like a. a a revelation in a way because you know and a, a sort of parallel universe to this you're listening to bands like crass like killing jokes really heavy stuff you know and this is still it's still got the mental punk attitude but yet it's allied to great melody and great playing as well i mean because i've just listened to a bit this morning um after my breakfast and it kind of you listen because obviously what struck me with about the record is the drumming budgie's drumming which is absolutely mm. amazing I, 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 it's just just utterly charming very very technically good you know so i'm contradicted saying the technique over creativity bit there's great technique there but it kind of the, the sound of the drums almost sounds like almost sounded like my drum kit when i was 16 you know it's very unpolished drum sound and you could imagine you, th you, you sit there playing your own drum and thinking, if I practice a little bit harder, maybe I could be as good as Budgie, uh, because I'm sounding a bit like Budgie. Because my drum kit's you know a piece of rubbish, and it sounded like his drum kit was a piece of rubbish. <laughs> you know, we should we should probably pause at this stage and play um, probably what might be described as maybe the defining track, or probably even more accurate to say the typical track. Hello. Um, this is Typical Girls, written by Viv Albertine, Tessa Pollitt, Ariane Foster and Paloma Romero and released on Island Records. Said that you mentioned the kind of the effect of the the sight of the cover of that record when you first saw yeah. it. But can you yeah. remember when or where that would have been? Because obviously we're going back to a time when not everybody bought every record. Your mates bought no, records, or no, you couldn't, got yeah. taped for you. So how can you remember your first encounter with? Um... I think I think it was probably in uh, Sound and Music Record Shop in Rotherham, yeah, because uh, you'd kind of go there on a Saturday afternoon like with you know swarms of kids and you'd be flicking through the racks looking at records you couldn't afford to buy or desperately thinking i've got me probably about a fiver a record that was in an lp so you probably had one five to spend on a record you think i've got to make the right decision here you know uh it could be very easy to make the wrong decision very very easy and pick up a right turkey you know and obviously uh the sleeve was was uh you know the yeah, you know, the, the the flag saying "Buy me, buy me" sort of thing. So you saw that and you're thinking, "Crikey, what's going on here?" You know, but I don't think I'd, I never bought the actual record because uh, my best mate had it. So we'd kind of sit around his house drinking cups of tea, listening to the record, and sort of passing the sleeve around, kind of going, "Ooh, crikey," you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I probably spent my fiver on something else that was probably a dud. I don't know, but. Um, but yeah, you know, a sleeve has got to kind of you know catch the eye. Absolutely, and I kind of and I think they were. Look, I rewatched the documentary the other day, and they were very aware, I think, of kind of the impact yeah. that that sleeve would would have, but also the the effect that it must have had because obviously there's a version of a you know a young boy who buys cut for the cover. Yeah. And then there's another version who is affected by the lyrics and the music that these yeah. women and one man are making. And that's, I think that's absolutely fascinating because it's almost like kind of they've 
they've they've kind of played a trick on you in a way, haven't they? They've yeah, said, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but also, I suppose that was also in the in the punk spirit because you know it was it was dangerous. Yeah, you know, if, you, if you walk back home at age fifteen with that record, you know, there could have been uproar. Yeah, what the bloody hell's that you've got there? What? You know. Well, I remember there was an article, I can't remember what newspaper it would have been, but there was an article in which they said, like, you know, that the the group's name was too offensive yeah. to publish in a family yeah. magazine, family newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, maybe that's just, um, you know, let's say adults or squares, you know, <laughs> putting their, projecting their own, you know, mucky mind onto it, you know. But the one of the wonderful things about it is, like, obviously, Ari Up, the singer, would have still been about the same age as you. So, yeah. like, kind of, so yeah. she'd, I mean, she probably, you'd have been about 15, 16 when you first heard it. Yeah. And she'd yeah. have been about the same age, wouldn't yeah. she? Because she was so young when, when the slit started. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we'd, we'd, we would have had no idea of that yeah. at all, you know. Um, and, and yet, there is a kind of, there's a playfulness to the record that is kind of that seems to be rooted in a kind of pre-mature, pre-teen kind of worldview. There's a kind of they're not even yeah. though there's something incredibly advanced about that album. At the same time, there's something incredibly youthful about it as well, isn't there? It's got a, it's got a life and a vibrancy that you know has has not been you know hammered out of them by the cynicism of you know the music industry. Let's say. Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't know that, you know, they were, they were sort of, uh, or, or some of them were sort of our, our age or just a little bit more. We don't, had no idea of that, but it doesn't really matter. You know, the, the record's still got a great um, a vibrancy, a great joy to it. It just sounds like, you know, some girls having a great laugh together and making some some fantastic music. Um, I mean, and yeah, it just, it just completely comes through that seems to be having such a great time. One thing I was wondering, you, you mentioned sort of feeling, you know, being in Rotherham, you know, slightly perhaps a year or maybe not quite a year, nine months to a year, sort of slightly behind the curve in terms of new reasons. Yeah. How, when this came out, you know, we heard a bit then and I revisited it earlier in the week. It sounds incredibly contemporary now, but to your ears as a teenager, mm. did it sound completely alien or, or could you kind of hear where they were coming from, you know, being aware of dub and um. that? Well, uh, my, my uh, best friend Steve, who had the record, he he was starting to really get into into right. reggae, and obviously the, we were aware that the the reggae and punk sort of uh, alliance was there for had been there right from the start. Uh, we were aware of that, so it did it did seem, you know, because it, it's not a massively reggae no. album. It's it's got you know lots of tinges of it um, with that sort of punk attitude, but. Um, it just no, we just I think we just enjoyed it as a great record to listen to and and get into. Um, and yeah, I think we we're far too young and naive to analyze any sort of uh, you know, musicology going off or anything like that. It was just a case of uh, this is a, a record where just about every track is absolutely brilliant, you know, and and really get into it. What about the lyrics? Because one of the fascinating things about this record is, and I do think this is really interesting, that so many teenage boys would have bought this record and then they would have kind of been listening to lyrics that are, that are about kind of like, you know, women kicking back against men, but also it's about the treatment of women. It's about yeah. kind of women yeah. being, you know, women being assaulted and, and, and you know, kind of there's there's a real kind of, political you know in the political in the sense of kind of gender politics kind of narrative yeah. that goes on in the record that in a way you can't avoid because it's presented in such a kind of relatable way it's not kind of like crass it's not kind of in yeah. your face it's not kind of like if you can't handle this f off you know yeah. there's a sense in which yeah. it's like yeah. there's an intimacy and a kind of almost a curious delicacy at times of the way yeah. it's presented. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think uh, certainly for, you know, my experience, you know, the, the girls that were, you know, into punk and, uh, and hanging, hanging around with us, you know, they were tough. You know, they were not taking any bullshit from anyone. You know, they were, uh, you know, they were quite scary at times as well, you know, and I think, um, 
maybe the start of that sort of uh, you know, anarcho-feminism type thing. Obviously, we're blokes. We aren't really equipped to talk about this in a, in, in a, in a great depth way. Um, but yeah, I think for us, it was a kind of a, 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 a sort of underground way of, of realising that, you know, uh, the other half of the population has to be respected. Uh, and they've got their own their own minds, their own fears, desires, wants, etc. And um, you know, don't think of them as as any kind of pushover because they ain't. Yeah, I think I mean I think it's a really important point, and I, and I love how at the same time as doing that, they present it in such a kind of like con complex, contradictory, playful way. It's kind of it's a constantly shifting album isn't it mm. it kind of it's not each mm. track is different each kind of lyrical position is different they tell different stories within the songs you know it kind of yeah yeah it's a it's a i was amazed going back to it what an incredibly rich record it is because it's very easy to just kind of like if you kind of go oh well i know you know i know how typical girls goes i know yeah. heard it through the grapevine mm, even though that was on the yeah. original record yeah yeah you know so there's a sense in which you kind of feel it's a record that you know and one of the things that really struck me going back to it is just how complex and varied it is yeah i mean I, you know talking about the record uh with with you know my mates around around the, the pub table i mean there's a lot of uh some of them sort of saying, well, I don't think the Slits actually played a lot on it and all this kind of stuff, you know, and saying that, oh, Dennis Bovel and Budgie basically did the music to the record. Um, but, you know, again, just listen to, to Viv Albertine's guitaring in there. She's so, you know, it's not just banging a few chords out. There's loads of stuff going off on there. You can imagine that, you know, Dennis Bovel had a lot to do. In listening to the, uh, uh, I which track it's called, but he's shaking the matchbox and dropping the cuts yeah. on the table, yeah. which gives a, a really unique percussive element to the song, which, you know, he's, you know, and that's that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, a good producer can bring bring to a record, a little bit of little bit of spark when perhaps everyone sat around listening to, you know, passes of the record and they're kind of going, nice. Oh, it's not very exciting. I think I read some ways. He went, all right, hold on, just put the mics up. I'll go and do something. And just got some stuff out of his pockets and just sort of just started, you know, rattling stuff and playing yeah. along. And it's just like really sort of, um, you know, you attract the ear. You kind of listen. You kind of go, what? what what's, it sounds like he's dropping a spoon on a table. What's all that about? <laughs> you know, you know, when you when you sort of, you know, you, you you're in your own sort of nascent band and you're saying, what? Yeah, a spoon on a table. That's what. What's that all about? You know. But then you think, Which is very, it's very Lee Perry, isn't it? You can yeah. tell that he'd have picked it up mm. from some totally, of reggae yeah, production yeah. and Black Ark and all that kind yeah, of stuff. And absolutely brilliant, and it makes you think. You know, it, it was kind of kind of signposting as as a young band as 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 potentially a, a path to take. That yeah, you know, I think I, t I talk in the book again about. Uh, so again, about that year, about 81, sort of, you kind of come to a fork in the road and, you know, punk has gone very sort of nihilistic, you know, discharge and UK subs, cron that kind of moved, evolved into kind of oi and that sort of horribleness. Mm -hmm. And then you had sort of another branch ahead of you, you know, like the Killing jokes, your slits. Uh, obviously, Clash had gone very Americana, all this kind of thing, which sort of said you can either go down this sort of, you know, uh, Pol Pot road where it can only be loud buzzsaw guitars shouting and, you know, everything's horrible, or there's this branch where things could be a lot more interesting. Yeah. Would lead us on to Echo and the Bunny Man, Joy Division. Mm -hmm that kind of thing and and it was a case of do you want to do you want to sort of you know live the rest of your life in a leather jacket with studs on or do you want to take this other path where it could take you anywhere and yeah i chose the other path yeah and quite, quite rightly and and, and the, that record of the slits really sort of signposted that that punk was more about what's happening in here than what was coming out the speakers of your, that your band were playing you know being a quote unquote punk did you have mates that didn't do that that kind of went down you know that that following prescriptive oh no we are gonna you know 
be the slightly cartoon punks. Yeah, there was a bit because, you know, uh, in sort of Rotherham and, and in Sheffield, it's quite a large sort of group of group of people and, and and you sort of had to, you, you kind of had to make that decision. Some will have gone down, down the road of, uh, I'm living out in this leather jacket studs on forevermore. Uh, but I think most took the took the path I went on, you know, that that opened up greater uh, and wider horizons. Um, but, but you know, uh, as we know, that punk kind of uh, turbocharged kids of our age to do lots and lots and lots of different things uh, and mm. get and get creative and, and lead you on to lots mm. of different things. So. And also in a sort of eighty one, I'd sort of finished my O level, so I was going into sixth form. So some of those kids who were more sort of tending towards the OI spectrum, kind of didn't go on to A levels, let's say, and they sort of more went to working steelworks and warehouses, sort of thing. And so you kind of naturally split off from that sort of group of folks anyway, because you weren't seeing them on a day to day basis, you know. Talking about kind of being taken down that different path, we really should talk, maybe talk a little bit more about um, Budgie's remarkable drumming on cut. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the kind of different, subtle, kind of non-rock sounds he gets out of his his kit. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you've got these kind of anxious little sort of dance grooves. And you write, you write in So so It Started Here about how, um, you know, kind of, originality in your head became one of the tenets of punk. So yeah. it's not about yeah. destruction. It's not about a yeah. kind of rigid authoritarian no notion of what punk is. And that seems to me that that sense of sort of originality and experiments is encapsulated in, in Budgie's drumming. And so maybe yeah. I'd just be interested, like just to hear you talk about that a little bit more, because I found it fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 well, first off, you know, uh, the drumming on that record does not sound like anything else around that time. It's very yeah. fluid. Uh, it's very sort of, uh, rather than just playing you know, a straight sort of backbeat, it's, it's going, uh, it's following sort of the sort of the sinews of the music uh, as, as, you know, as if like uh, a, a, another guitar would kind of thing. It's not, not just playing, it's a jumping from different bits, you know, which is technically very, very advanced, I, I think. Um, and it just, again, it was just another signpost kind of pointing to the it saying, you know, you've got to get creative with your own playing in your own band to try and do something, um, do something different, do something that's going to be ear-catching. And I suppose I, I, in the, the, you know, bands I was with and then obviously culminating in, in joining Paul is that... But I, I, I still was very mindful of that, that you wanted to make each each song that you were working on different. And if you could make have different bits within that song as well, it's going to be all the better for the greater good. And so, so you know, Budgie's playing was, was, you know, something to really, really look up for as, as a fledgling player that you'd think... I want to, if I could get as half, make a record that's a half as interesting drumming-wise as he has done on cut, then I'm on to a winner, baby. You know, and uh, hey, it's hard to do. Uh, yeah, you know, really. I hard. think I think that I think that's the other thing about that record. There's a certain sense in which you kind of you might approach it with a kind of the idea that what you're dealing with here is amateurism. And on one level of that word, you are, because these are resolutely not professional sounds. Yeah. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are easy mm. to replicate or create. I mean, interesting, the thing you were saying earlier about um, people at the time saying that, you know, that the slits didn't play on the record. Mm. It's kind of like you listen to Viv Albertine's guitar sound and there's no way that anyone else could create that. There's a really interesting little bit in the documentary where mm. she's talking about how Dennis Bavel came in and, and, and sort of played a little bit on one of the tracks to show her how he wanted it to sound. Yeah. And everyone was saying, oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Let's keep it on the yeah. record. And she was in tears because she was going, no one's going to believe that that's me. No one's going to yeah. believe that I yeah, sound yeah. like that. Yeah. It, has to, it has to sound 
like I I would play it. And I think that's mm. one of the key aspects of the record, that their personalities come through in yeah. every aspect of the record. And here we have, is this Ari saying, we're not musicians. The ultimate test of creative talent and potential is the extent to which an artist puts across original ideas in a manner of transcending the limitations of technique. That the slits do this is beyond question. Only spoil sports could dismiss them as a joke. Do they consider themselves musicians? No, not at all, says Viv. And that's not because we can't play brilliantly. It's because if we do, we'll be misrepresented. We've heard about musicians. And anyway, is that what we play, music? Says Pomolive. If men don't like us to be free, that's their problem. If they don't like it, they can fuck off. <laughs> so best choice ever to be signed with Ireland. And we had complete creative control in this contract. Also, it led us on to being able to work with the infamous dub maestro, Dennis Burvell. How better does it get? They were being held the female version of the Sex Pistols. Everyone was looking at them to be the premier punk female band. So I leapt at the opportunity to help them to get there. And I instantly detected their love of reggae. Dennis was a hard taskmaster. It had to be perfect. For Viv and me specifically, it was kind of torture, but you just don't give up until it's perfect. Viv Goldman took the picture in to get a review for the album. And when they saw the cover, they were like, oh, but they look so ugly and disgusting. We don't want to review that. We don't want to put that in our paper. But the worst thing is the criticism that followed is that people thought, oh, the slits aren't playing on that record. No, it must have been Dennis. It must have been Dennis. It must have been Dennis. Yeah, you could certainly imagine, like, like you're saying with that anecdote, that, um, you know, if, if say, Viv Alvatine had, had, had uh, years of, of guitar lessons, learning how to play the blues and the pentatonic scales and all that, all that stuff, what is it? I don't know. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't be able to create the interesting and innovative sounds that she has done on that record because you kind of think, well, you don't do it like that. You you play uh, a, a, an F seventh over that 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 bass chord. You don't you think that punk was like, well, I don't know, I'll just do this because it sounds good. I don't yeah. care that. Yeah. You know, it's oh, it's not in the book of the book of guitar blues and all that kind of stuff. You know, punk threw all those out the window, rightly so. It was like, is it? Does it sound good? Yes. Does it make the record sound good? Very much so. Bang, there it is. You know, and it's it's that genuine thing of it. Yeah, I, you can imagine saying no. It's if I play, you know, a, a stereotypical sort of that's you know blues thing there that uh, you know any old. Uh, bloke guitarist would do then it's not true to herself and where she's coming from you know if you listen to there was uh, an album uh, I think it was a sort of a demo album that came out before Cut called Why which mm. was the very very early days you know it, it, that's kind of unlistenable noise to be honest you know because my mate Steve was, was so well into the slits he had that and kind of put it on thinking it's just going to be show you the you know, the organic roots of, of Cut, uh, and it was kind of like, what the hell is this unlistenable <laughs> rubbish, you know? You know, and and so it's a, a massive leap from, from what they went there to there. Then hopefully they made that massive leap through uh, through being creative over being, you know, technically masterful. Is there, would you say, is is there a defining track on cuts? Because I'd like to play another track in the podcast. Well, is there is there a defining track on cut for you in terms of like originality and influence? Well, even the, the, I, I think it's the ping pong affair where Dennis has got his matchbox out, and it's it's all very, it's all very kind of spacey, which I, I really really like. Like new, well, you could you could you could pick any any track off the album, Newtown, FM, all that kind of stuff. It's all absolutely, it's, it's all solid gold to me, you know. So I'd, I'd go with Ping Pong Affair if that's the one, the, the matchbox on, you know. 
Perfect. Okay, this is Ping Pong Affair, written by Viv Albertine, Tessa Pollitt, Ariane Foster, Paloma Romero, and Dennis Pavel, and released on Island Records. Have you ever met any of the members of the Slits? Have you ever had a chance to talk to them about uh, the influence of well, this record? Well, quite funny, actually, because um, we went to uh, Enemy Awards a few a few, few years back uh, and just sort of wandered in, you know, getting a drink and uh, uh, bumped into Jeanette, Pulp's manager. Mm. Oh, hi, Jeanette, how are you doing? And she was talking to this, this, uh, this other lady who was quite tall and uh, she was kind of looking at me very intensely and going... Oh Nick, this is my friend Viv. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, oh, hi Viv. Yeah, nice to meet you. Hi Viv. You know. Oh, anyway, Jeanette, blah blah blah. Well, get it out. And then sort of wandered <laughs> off. And then about half an hour later, she kind of went, oh bollocks. Oh, I know who Viv was now. Oh, made her act to myself. And then fast forward in a couple of years, and she had her book out, boys, 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 girls, 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 etc. Uh, and went to see a talk of hers in Sheffield uh, and met afterwards and regaled her that story. Uh, and, you know, we had a bit of a laugh about that. Because uh, obviously her and, you know, Jeanette was, a, was a, you know, a, a punk around that all that time, you know, heavily yeah. involved in it all. So they they Absolutely, yeah. for years and years and years, you know. So we had, a, we had a hearty laugh about that, you know. But, yeah, that was the only time I've met them. And you didn't, I mean, because I know what it's like when you meet, you know, meet people in bands who've had a massive influence on you. You're mm-hmm. caught between, shall I just play it cool and talk to them as if they're a normal person, or shall I break that rule and tell them how yeah. massively influential they were? Well, what did you it. do? And, you know, I've, I've met Budgie once. And again, it's another good story, actually. Um, we went to see, he was playing with John Grant a couple of years ago, and he was playing at the Sheffield Octagon. I went along and uh, um, went backstage to, to see, see John with, our good friend Richard Hawley, who's a good friend of John's and that. Uh, and we're sort of in the dressing room, having a chit-chat, having a drink, etc. And, and Budgie was in there, and he was talking to someone else. But he'd, he'd just come out of the shower, and he'd just got a towel on. And he was talking to me, I thought, well, you know, you don't really want to go up and say to someone, hi, hi, I'm a massive all that, when you're just wearing a towel. I mean, you think, well, he's wearing a towel, so he's going to go and get dressed in a couple of minutes. But now he was talking for ages with this bloke, and I, you know, we are thinking, you know, Surely he's gonna to have to he's have to get dressed and then you feel you finally have a chat with someone. But no, you're on and he kept talking to this bloke on and on and on. And I was with the with the missus and I'm saying, that's, that's Budgie, one of my ultimate heroes and all this kind of stuff. She goes, For God's sake, I said, Oh yeah, I will do, but he's he's just in a towel, you know. <laughs> and she's going, Oh, don't be so bloody stupid. So so in the end I said, yeah, I thought, well, he's he's gonna be talking to this bloke for hours in his towel. So he just end up having to go so that's Sorry, Budgie. Yeah, I'd like to meet because we're getting off. I just want to come and come and say hi and all that. And we, you know, we had a, had a good chat with him still in his towel. But you know, it wasn't phased at all. It was a lovely chat. You know, had a, you know, really, really nice, easy chit chat. It was great. You know, yeah, because you're right. You know, meeting your heroes. You know, he's going to go. You know, one or two ways. They're either going to be cool and ace, or a or a dickhead. Yeah. You know, and thankfully <laughs> it was the former. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, look, Nick, it's been an absolute joy talking to you about the book yeah, and cool. about the slits and yeah. about drumming and all the, and and budgie and all that kind of stuff. It's been great. Ah. And now at, th- at this point, what I would really should be doing is yeah. um, is plugging the book. It's been yeah. a joy talking to you about the book. It's been and it's an absolute delight to read. So I'm going to give you the stage and let you uh, announce again what it's called. Who's publishing it and when it's out? Okay, well, yes, it's 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 my little memoir, and it's called and it started there, uh, from punk to pulp. It's uh, been published by Omnibus, and I believe it will be available uh, in all your local booksellers from the twenty eighth of September. And uh, I'll be going around and about talking about it, talking about myself in September as well. So I'm sure if you're on your 
on your metal, you'll get to hear about all that. Fantastic. And uh, once again, thank you so much. And it's, it's, it's a, a delight um, to read it. And I'm looking forward to actually properly having the time to finish it now. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, everybody out there, for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Okay, now we get to the part of the show where we get to rave about some new records. Chris, what have you been listening to this week? Well, this week feels very appropriate, speaking of uh, post-punk. Um, I've been thoroughly enjoying the latest Pill record, End of the World. Um, and I think, sort of, I was jumping in a bit earlier there when we were when Nick was talking about that split where you either decided to be more Catholic and restricted uh, and knucklehead down, as it were, and, you know, listen to Oi, or you decided to follow the, the, the path that he took from listening to the slits. And for me, obviously, I think no band represents this more than Pill and Public Image. And I've got to say... I've been listening to it again and again and again. I generally think this is one of the best Pill records. I think you might be right. I think at the very least, it's probably the best since album, would you say? What's that, 1985? I really thought since they came back in, I'm just trying to think when it was now, 2012, I think, when they first came back, that this is Pill. I thought that was a fantastic record. Um, What the World Needs Now wasn't quite as good, but still good. But generally, I I would put this up there with the best records Lyman's made, which... You know, considering it's 2023, is is very impressive. We should probably play a little bit and then maybe talk about it a little bit more. This is the mm. most recent track released from um, the album. This is the playfully rollicking yet also slightly sinister car chase, written by Lydon Smith, Edmonds, and Firth, and from the album End of World, released on Pill Official Records. I'm not standing in the road, Rambo. I really like this record, Chris. Uh, yeah. But then I've always kind of liked Lydon and Pill. I think much more than even, I think, a lot of their so-called fans, like the, the <laughs> punk, what we were talking about, like the hard exactly that, Yeah, that's what kind of what I was trying to get the hard jump in about. leather-jacketed yeah. kind of no-frills and no-fun punk faithful. Because I like his contradictory presence. I like the fact that, you know, in the kind of you know the words of kind of the you know kind of angry young men i am not what you know i'm not what you think i am you know and i will go out of the way to prove that and one of the things i like about this record is i like the weight of it i like how moored to the ground it is by the bass and drums and yet kind of how it still manages to flit from style to style Lydon's sound at its kind of most innovating tends to kind of be quite metallic and trebly he's got a kind of almost kind of metallic quality to his voice which when it works is is amazingly powerful but can also kind of be quite kind of wearying and it needs a good anchor it needs kind of to be rooted to the ground and i think this album really is it's got a kind of you know it's got both feet on the ground it's got a real weight and power to it i think it's not a brittle Brittle no. and he can be at all, which they can be very brittle. Yeah, yeah. both 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 as a you know as a, as a, as an individual and as a, and as a vocalist, but also as a songwriter, he can be incredibly brittle. I think that's a kind of defining word for him. And this album isn't that at all. And it is pop pill as well. You know, it's kind of each song on there is despite which sort of style they're going down, they are all very much in 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 their you know. There's not a death disco on this. It's very much. These are our big choruses, punchy, tight numbers. And I, th- I think, obviously, uh, which has been spoken about a lot, the the background to it of you know him writing it as Nora was battling Alzheimer's, which she obviously you know ultimately lost. It's not a record, unlike as I say, Death Disco. Um, 
there's not much grief on this record at all. It is incredibly life affirming. I mean, if you mm. if you played it to someone and asked them to guess what was happening in his personal life while it would happen, you'd never you'd never other than Hawaii, which is obviously yeah. a very beautiful, touching, possibly the most sort of touching romantic song he's ever written on it. And kind of, I mean, Death Disco is a really interesting comparison point, isn't it? Because obviously another record that was written while someone he loved was dying, you know, and you can kind of see in a sense that all that kind of anger and sort of diatribe and that, that need to sort of push your face into it, that's all gone. Or if not gone, it's kind of taken, momentarily taken a back seat. But those, I mean, those kind of aspects of his character are there have you have you you've met him have you interviewed him yes yeah you know i, I interviewed him um very recently actually uh and you know he was i think it was the second interview he'd done since nora's passing and yeah it was he within five minutes had broken down uh and was you know was weeping and stuff and you know he'd pull himself back and going through the process and stuff so it's, it's still incredibly raw for him and it was yeah it's, it's as far as interviews I've done recently have gone, it was um, it was quite a powerful emotional experience. But yeah, as I say, one of the things that he kept on saying, which he talks about in the latest issue of Mojo as well, is that that work work is kind of what work is what sort of kind of anchors him and keep, keeps him going. And the fact that you know he kept thinking to himself, "What would she want?" And she yeah. liked she liked him up. She liked him working, and she liked him yeah. being happy. So he, that's the thing that he hangs on to is that if she was here, if I was moping or drawing the blinds, she'd hate that and give me a kick up yeah. the arse. So he, that's what he, he pulls himself back to constantly, thinking, well, if Nora's here, what would she want me to be doing? She really I loved inter- Pill. Yeah. I interviewed him around about the time of The Filth and the Fury, and one of the things that really struck me was that he has this ability to move between the the scary and the confrontational and the incredibly kind of kind and gentle like mm. almost in this sometimes even in the space of a question the, yeah. he might kind of you know because he's he's very i mean he is like when he's if you get on the wrong side of him i asked him i had quoted him but the quote was from a tabloid newspaper and he kind of got incredibly angry and in my face about it and he could see that I was, I was terrified. And as soon as he saw that I was terrified, he was incredibly nice about it. And he was really gentle and understanding and not apologetic because that's not Leiden's way, mm. but he was very much kind of like, oh, I can see that I've scared you, but here's maybe why you might think that would be, you know, or something. It's like, he's, I mean, he is a force to be in the room with, you know, a, yes. kind of, a real kind of presence, but there is... I like my stars complex. I like them contradictory. I like them kind of with a million facets and he's completely that. And I think this album captures that aspect of him. And there's, I think that there's something that possibly veers on, again, I suppose it's going back to the, what you like, you know, that whatever people say, I am, that's what I am not. Yeah. Is that song being stupid. Um, yes. Cause obviously in recent years, you know, he has come out as pro Trump and, you know, he says things that not only would infuriate the Sex Pistols fans, you know, that would, you know, in clash with, um, you know, lots of lots of uh, lots of music fans. Full stops. You know, he's coming out with views that we kind of feel are verboten. Uh, and there is that song. I think you know it's quite tongue in cheek, but I think that sort of dips, you know, pushes that button slightly. That that sort of uh, at political correctness gone mad. I suppose what we could have called in the 90s or house here sort of anti-wokeness sort of thing which mm. I, I hate even uttering that but he yeah. is kind of pushing that button there on that song i think absolutely but i think kind of you can see how there is that version of the anarchist still exists in him that need to sort of disrupt that need to go against like a version of of him that people think he is and you do wonder kind of it's and i think kind of there is a there is a version of Leiden that I don't think he'll ever show to us. There is always a sense in which he is being performative in all his interviews. And I think you occasionally get a glimpse of who he might have been 
before he had to put all those various different walls up to protect mm. himself. But I don't think we'll ever fully see it. But the the occasional glimpses that you get, both in person, in interview, and on this album, are really precious, I think. No, I think and so. This idea of kind of artists who are ultimately unknowable, which we can keep as a as a theme, because my, my record of the week is... Um, it's called Keeping Secrets Will Destroy You. It's the new record by Will Oldham, recording under his most familiar pseudonym, Bonnie Prince Billy, and released on the Domino label. And it's kind of, on first listen, it's this very simple, warm, communal, small, interior-sounding record. You've just got kind of voice, guitar, some strings, some horns, some keyboards, a little bit of saxophone on one track very much recorded as if everyone is in the same room. It's simultaneously easeful, but also mysterious. It's kind of like you initially feel like you know it. You feel like this is a kind of simple, familiar record. But you gradually realize, like a lot of Will Oldham records, that the lyrics are kind of what might be described as calming riddles. Um, you know, kind of it's sometimes it's just Will Oldham's voice. Sometimes he's singing, duetting beautifully with um Dane Waters and kind of there's a sense in which you're kind of it's a very comfortable record to be in the same room as but at the same time there's something unknowable about it something impossible to pin down that kind of keeps you keeps you coming back to it um I'm going to play a track that gives a good impression of the record because it's gorgeous yet strange comforting yet also a little unsettling comic yet deeply serious this is bananas written by Will Oldham and released on Domino Records. first single he put off this album and I, I think you captured that brilliantly perfectly for me it is that sense that on the surface yeah you're kind of especially on on the tracks on this record where he's duetting you are sort of pulled under in this quite sort of sleepy-eyed beautiful realm but it is yeah there's something unsettling there's something barbed and something not quite right once you once you get in there that as mm. you say that you're trying to trying to unpick and unravel but yeah for me that's it. and it's how what I like how it works is that it's done with this sparseness. Yeah. That on some tracks, there's, there's only three things happening on, on, on an entire track, but it can still, it, it still creates, with this, these very small ingredients still create something that is very kind of, un, as you say, unsettling, but it can be funny. It can be sad. Yeah, yeah no, it's very much, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a record that, you know, pulls the rug out from under your feet a lot. I saw him live. I went to see him live in um, Hackney in December. And um, by all accounts, his press officer said that before he went out on stage, he was in an absolutely foul mood. And there was a, there was almost a set, there was almost this kind of like worry that he wasn't going to perform that night, that he wasn't going to go out on stage. Oh, really? And when he came out, he was just hypnotic, utterly charming and funny and beguiling and played almost all kind of new songs a lot of them kind of that now have ended up on this um album and normally when you go and see an artist and they play almost all new songs there's a real sense of like oh well screw you pal you know we're not we're not here we're not here for your album showcase play the hits you know, yeah play the will Oldham hit. hits exactly <laughs> and where the bangers what was, what was fascinating about it is everyone was under his spell he casts a spell mm. And I think he does, and on his best records, he casts a spell as well. And I think this would be in the category of, I think, certainly one of the best records he's released in, you know, kind of the last 15 years. I think it kind of, it has that kind of elusive kind of mercurial magic of him at his best. Yeah. To misquote Will Oldham himself, you see a darkness. You know, there is, there's a little kind of, there's a yeah, little fleck of right. darkness, even in the lightest of tracks. Anyway, 
you have been listening to. Nick Banks, Chris Catchpole, and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club, and we hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in and look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. You've been listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Nick Banks. Here is God's plenty.